Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorn Podcast. Jennifer and Kalia will edify It's the Pages of Popcorn Podcast. Jennifer and Kalia are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Welcome to the Pages and Popcorn episode. <laughs> I'm Kalia, and that's... Jennifer. Jennifer. We've already done the intro, so we don't have to do it again. But today we will be discussing Hillbilly Elegy. Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and culture in crisis. It is the 2016 memoir by J.D. Vance about the Appalachian values of his Kentucky family and the relation to the social problems of his hometown in Middletown, Ohio, where his mother's parents moved when they were young. It was made into the 2020 movie that premiered on Netflix right before Thanksgiving 2020, and accidentally, maybe, bookends the Trump presidency, which is rather interesting. So we are going to talk about that today. But real quick, before we talk about that, just a quick reminder that you can find our show notes with lots of links, as well as information and uh, ways that you can support this podcast. Cough, cough, Patreon. Cough, cough, rate and review us. Cough, cough, tell your friends. All at kmmamedia.com. That is K mmamedia.com. You'll see a little link at the top. It says podcast. Drop that down and pick pages and popcorn podcast off the list and find out more information. And if you want to make a podcast or are in the process of making a podcast or need help with your podcast, well, that's also a good place to start. Kmmamedia.com. Maybe you can be part of our podcast network along with Ghostthropology. Have to give a quick shout out to Ghostthropology that now has its seventh episode out and about out there in the world for people to listen to. And if you want to know what is this Ghostthropology, well, guess what? Go to <laughs> kmmamedia.com, your one-stop shop. Speaking of shopping, <laughs> depending on when you're listening to this, there could still be time to order things by Christmas at our shop, our KMMA Media Shop. That's right. We've got t-shirts. We've got stickers. We have a face mask that's kind of cool. We've got a blanket. There's all kinds of fun stuff in there, so check it out. Okay, I'm done. That's the end of the intro. That was a lot of just me riffing. <laughs> not, none of that is in my notes. <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to do the recap. Listeners, sometimes I recap by I take notes while I read and then I flesh them out with, you know, with the book sitting next to me. Sometimes I start with the Wikipedia and I flesh it out. Sometimes there's nothing on Wikipedia. So I find some other website and I, I take their bare bones plot and then I flesh it out and I add some commentary. I try not to add too much commentary, but you know, okay. This time around, having read this book twice, under duress both times. No, just kidding. But anyways, having read this book twice <sighs> and facing the holiday and all kinds of other stuff, I, I am taking a cheating way out, but I'm acknowledging it here. I found a plot synopsis discussion on a website. It was called 
icharts.com slash hillbillyelegy summary. And it was so well done that I decided I'm just going to read this thing. This is what I'm going to read. So my recap for the movie is my recap. I took my notes while I watched the movie and then I put them into, you know, paragraph form. So that's that. But this, this is actually from a website. So there you go. Here we go. J.D. Vance begins his memoir by explaining that he is not a politician or an academic. He is simply somebody who grew up in Appalachian's working class and who found a way to achieve upward mobility against the statistical odds, which indicated that he would, as the grandson of hillbillies and the son of a drug addict, fail to graduate high school and likely succumb to drug addiction and domestic violence. His remarkable ability to avoid this fate, though, is not the reason he wrote Hillbillyology. Rather, he wrote the book so that people could, quote, understand what happens in the lives of the poor and the psychological impact that spiritual and maternal poverty has on their children, unquote. Hillbillies, Vance explains, descend from Scots-Irish-Americans who migrated to the United States from Scotland in the 18th and 19th century. For this group of people, poverty is the family tradition, and hardly anybody earns college degrees. Like Vance's relatives, many Scots-Irish Americans live in the hills of Kentucky. Although Vance himself spent most of his childhood in Middletown, Ohio, where many hillbilly families migrated in order to work at Amco Steel, a generous employer of formerly uneducated workers, he identifies Jackson, Kentucky as his true home. This is because his grandparents, Mama and Papa, spent the majority of their lives in Jackson. Family lore revolves around the town, and Vance illustrates the importance of the hillbilly oral storytelling tradition. He writes about his great uncles, Mama's brothers, who he idolized as a child. They used to sit around and tell him spectacular tales. These stories were hardly appropriate for a child, but Vance reveled in the hillbilly justice each narrative advanced. In fact, the oral storytelling tradition often emphasizes the hillbilly community's strong values, which are loyalty and honor. Vance's Uncle Pet, for example, once told a story about a man named Big Red who insulted his mother. After warning Big Red to retract his words, Uncle Pet beat him unconscious and ran an electric saw up and down his body. Big Red survived, but he never pressed charges because he knew what it meant to insult a man's mother. Having outlined the importance of honor and loyalty in hillbilly culture, Vance enumerates the many troubles plaguing Kentucky and the greater region of Appalachia. Even now, or especially now, drug addiction runs rampant throughout the working class community, along with the dietary trappings of unhealthy lifestyles that depend on fast food and sugary sodas. Seeking a better life, Vance's grandparents moved from Kentucky to Ohio, where Papa took a job at Amco Steel. They had married as teenagers in Kentucky in 1947, two members of well-known hillbilly families. The young couple moved to Ohio because Papa's only other option was to work in the Kentucky coal mines, a prospect that would bring his family little in the way of satisfaction or stability. Mama and Papa had three children, Vance's Uncle Jimmy, his Aunt Wee, and his mother Bev. Unfortunately, Papa had a serious drinking problem, an issue Mama met with intense scorn. She refused to allow her husband to continue his boozy lifestyle, and after many arguments, which included displays of domestic violence on both sides, she warned Papa that she would murder him if he ever came home drunk again. When he ignored her several nights later, she poured gasoline on him while he slept on the couch and lit him on fire. Luckily, Aunt Wee, who was 11 at the time, sprang to life and put the fire out. Papa finally quit drinking years later, and although he and Mama separated and decided to live in different houses, they continued to spend all their time with one another. Vance asserts that children who witness this kind of domestic discord Mama and Papa were involved in are statistically more likely to lead difficult lives themselves. Uncle Jimmy and Aunt Wee, though, managed to make it out of childhood and establish stable lives, though Aunt Wee's f first relationship was indeed abusive. Unfortunately, Bev, Vance's mother, succumbed to the statistical odds and embarked on a life of drug addiction and unstable romantic partnerships. 
She gave birth to Vance during her second marriage, which disintegrated not long afterwards. Her next husband, Bob, adopted Vance and is a relatively kind man, and the family achieved something like stability for a small stretch of time, during which J.D. attended schools and developed a love of reading. Despite her many flaws, Vance admits that his mother believed deeply in the promise of education and worked to instill the belief in her children. Mama and Papa figured greatly in Vance's life since they had lived in a nearby house. This relatively calm period came to a close, though, when Bev and Bob decided to move away from Middletown because they felt like Mama and Papa were encroaching upon their autonomy. Vance was devastated to lose easy access to his grandparents, whom he considered his best friends, and to make matters worse, the move brought with it its first domestic dispute of Bev and Bob's marriage. Because Bev had inherited Mama's characteristic temper, she never backed down from a fight. Vance notes that his mother's arguments with his stepfather were his first model of how to go about solving marital disagreements, a process that often involved throwing plates and screaming. As a result of this turmoil he witnessed in his private life, he began to do poorly in school, stayed up late, listening with his sister Lindsay to Bob and Bev's arguments. One day, Vance returned from school to find that Mama had paid an unexpected visit. She'd come because Vance's mother had attempted to commit suicide after a particularly raucous argument with Bob, who had apparently discovered that she was having an affair and subsequently demanded a divorce. Although Bev drove her car headlong into a telephone pole, she managed to survive. Mama doubts that her daughter's intentions were actual suicide, believing that Bev had instead tried to make it look like she wanted to die in order to win sympathy and take everybody's attention off of the affair. In the aftermath of this fiasco, J.D., Lindsay, and their mother move back to Middletown, where they live in a home that's even closer to Mama's Papa's than before. During this period, Bev went into a downward spiral of irresponsible behavior and started dating men who never stayed around for very long. One day, when Vance was upset at Bev for her erratic behavior, she apologized to him and promised to drive him to the mall to buy him football cards. On the way, she grew angry with him and started speeding on the highway, promising that she would crash the car and kill them both. J.D. jumped into the back seat, prompting her to pull over so that she could beat the shit out of him. When the car stopped, though, he ran through a large field until he came upon a woman floating in a backyard swimming pool. My mom is trying to kill me, he said, pleading with the woman to call Mama. Getting out of the pool, she took him inside and to the phone. Meanwhile, Bev arrived and hammered away at the door, eventually breaking it down and snatching JD. Fortunately, though, the woman had called the police, who quickly appeared to take Bev away. When she was later tried for a domestic violence misdemeanor, JD was called upon to testify against her. Instead, he lied, saying that she'd never threatened him. He did this to protect his mother, but also because he'd made a deal with her that if he refrained from casting her as an abusive person, he could live with Mama and Papa whenever he wanted. Papa died shortly after Bev started dating a man named Matt, and his death affected the entire family. Mama, who was normally so inexhaustible and strong, revealed emotional vulnerabilities. More importantly, Bev descended into a prescription drug habit that had been slowly gaining momentum. More than anybody else, she was devastated by Papa's death, a fact she took great pains to emphasize, telling even her children they didn't have the right to be sad, as because it was her father who had died. After attacking Matt one day, Bev was arrested and admitted to a drug rehabilitation center, a period in which J.D. relied on Lindsay, who had just graduated high school, for support. Finally, when J.D. finished 8th grade, his mother was almost one year sober and Lindsay was married to a man named Kevin. Before J.D. started high school, Bev insisted that he move with her and Matt to Dayton, Ohio, effectively isolating him once again from his structure of support, school, and mama. J.D. refused to do so and said opting to live with his biological father, Don, with whom he'd recently reconnected. Don was also from Kentucky, and although by all accounts he'd been a terrible husband and father, sometimes even physically abusive, he had made dramatic changes in his life, turning to Christian evangelicalism and starting a new family that strictly followed the rules of the church. This appealed to J.D., who yearned for a dependable community. 
As such, he happily went to live with Don. Despite the instability of Don's house, though, JD felt constantly on guard in his new life, a feeling that eventually encouraged him to move in with Mama, with whom he stayed for the remainder of the summer before finally consenting to live with Bev and Matt in fear of overstraining his grandmother. As JD advanced through high school, his mother's drug addiction continued, along with her tumultuous and ever-changing romantic life. After years of attending Narcotics Anonymous to support his mother just to watch her continue to use drug, Vance finally decided to live full-time with Mama, a decision he believed saved his life. Immediately, his grades in school improved, and he lost all interest in hanging out with other kids who smoked marijuana or drank alcohol. He was even accepted into college at Ohio State University, although when the time came to commit, he felt unprepared. He knew that going to college would be an investment in his future, but he couldn't shake the feeling that not all investments are good investments. Mama framed education as the only damn thing worth spending money on, but he decided to postpone higher education, opting instead to join the Marines, a challenge that seemed insurmountable considering that he was out of shape and severely lacked discipline. Although she was apprehensive, Mama supported JD by sending him letters while he was in boot camp. The experience of constant exercise and psychological challenges transformed him, giving him confidence and agency he never could have fathomed before entering the Marines. Not long before Vance shipped out to Iraq in 2005, Mama died, leaving him truly on his own for the first time in his life, though now he had gained a sense of self-sufficiency. Thankfully, he served in the Iraq War without sustaining any injuries, and when he returned, he finally attended Ohio State University. This was an intense period, as he worked multiple jobs while taking classes, but J.D. had come to appreciate the value of pushing himself towards his goals. As a result, he graduated in only one year and 11 months. He then set about applying for law schools. On a second round of applications, he was accepted to Yale Law School, where he ended up receiving his degree. During his time at Yale, Vance was forced time and again to confront the gaping class divide between his hillbilly upbringing and the wealthy, elite environment in which he now found himself. Luckily, he became close with a classmate named Usha, who often helped him navigate social situations. One time, for example, he called her from the bathroom of a fancy restaurant when he was meeting a prestigious prospective employer to ask which piece of silverware he should use. He and Usha ended up dating, eventually marrying after they graduated from law school. Vance notes that even after successfully attaining upward mobility, he still often finds himself drawn back to the uglier sides of his original community. One night, not long after his graduation from Yale, for example, he drove to Middletown to pay for his mother to stay at a rundown motel because her fifth husband had kicked her out after she started using heroin. Quote, upward mobility is never clean cut, and the world I left always finds a way to reel me back in, he writes. This is not something he is ashamed of, though. Rather, he embraces his responsibility as a successful, stable representative of the hillbilly class, doing what he can to support young people who struggle with the same demons he himself had to face as a teenager. Hillbilly Elegy, okay, so this is the little conclusion from the website. Hillbilly Elegy is first and foremost a memoir, but it also examines the Appalachian working class at large, often incorporating sociological studies to supplement Vance's life story and proposing possible new ways of thinking about poverty. Although these effects are too numerous to include, it's worth noting that Vance holds up religion and education as two means by which young people can attain upward mobility. Pin in that, says Kalia. <clears throat> and although he outlies various government and economic ideas that contribute to the current situation in Appalachia, he maintains that the best way to address rural poverty is not with policy changes, but with social changes. Too many hillbillies, he say, blame the government and various external figures for their own misfortune, and this allows them to shy away from responsibility and hard work. As such, a pervasive attitude adjustment is called for, one that takes into account the working class's problems of family, faith, and culture. So the movie skipped the sociological aspect and told a story that was could have been very straightforward, except that Ron Howard decided to overuse the device of the flashback. Ahem. So 
normally (laughs) I might have actually said, here's this story and here's this narrative story and they go back and forth. But no, gentle listener, I want you to experience the flippity floppity flashback palooza that happened. So I'm going to include it in my recap. It's 1997 and youngish, 12, 13, I could not tell how old he was. Youngish JD finds a turtle and rescues it despite its suggestion to kill it or torture it by another boy. He is riding his bike down to the watering hole where he can go swimming because it is Kentucky and again 1997. JD is then almost drowned by a gang of hillbilly boy bullies. Go back to Ohio, he's told. See, he spends most of his time in Ohio with his mom and his grandparents, but they summer in Kentucky. He tries to fight back, but he's a plump, pale little kid and there are three of them. JD's family shows up and an uncle punches the bully ringleader. Ah, family bonding. Back at home, there's a group picture and then JD, his sister, their mom and grandparents all head back to Ohio. On the route, JD ruminates about how his mama left Kentucky as a young teen, pregnant and such, and headed for a new life. The flight with her and her very young husband parallels the drive that JD and his family are doing now. The music for the grandparents as they drive through Middletown in flashback is sad, but with a slight hopeful uplift. But for the young JD traveling home, it's just sad. And things don't look so good for the town of Middletown. Home is the suburbs, where Mama shares ribs with a neighbor kid. The grandparents each have their own house, and everyone lives in basically the same neighborhood. As he walks inside his house, kid JD is melancholy. You see, there's just no hope in Middletown, apparently. The rest of the movie goes back and forth, like I said, with this young JD spanning what I think is supposed to be three or four years, along with three days in the present. Normally, I might separate these two narratives, but since Ron Howard wanted us to be constantly moving back and forth, and he's the big time director, let's do it his way. It's 14 years later, and young man JD is washing dishes and going to law school at Yale, talking about how hard it is going to be and hanging out with his girlfriend Usha. The hardship is all financial, it seems. He's on aid and working three jobs, but needs to land a summer job so that he can afford to continue to go to school. Perfect timing. There's an interview dinner thing happening, so off JD goes to try to land himself a summer job. At the fancy cocktail party slash dinner, he doesn't know the different types of wine, and he feels out of place. He has a mild panic attack about which fork and which bread to use and eat, and so he calls Usha. She gives him a crash course in fine dining. I wonder why she didn't tell him any of this beforehand. Apparently, she likes him because he doesn't know which is the right fork. Okay. Before he can make connections, he gets a phone call. His mom is on heroin again and has OD'd and is in the hospital. Flashbacks of shots to his mom being strung out. JD returns to the table, tells his life story of born in Kentucky, then went to the Marines, then college, and then it's awkward for some reason. Some asshole gives him crap for being a redneck, and JD gets all defensive. Sister is back on the phone asking him to come home. He can't because it's interview week, but the pull is strong, and so are the mother and son flashbacks. Including an Easter with a surprise dog from mom's current boyfriend, and mom is all sort of extreme emotions, happy, then angry, then lashing out, and then the family heirlooms of Penske eggs are all broken because JD's a klutz, and then mom flips out. Also, JD likes D&D, and mom likes watching the domestic violence next door. Mom buys forgiveness through football cars, but even that is tainted when an impromptu dance party turns dysfunctional because klutzy JD knocked over a stand of cards, then there's some slight property damage, and then theft, but yay, mother-son bonding time. We have like three seconds of nice mom, then she's angry again, and now she's raving as she drives about how she provides for them, and they aren't properly grateful, and now she's speeding, and she's apparently suicidal, and young JD is in danger and scared, and she pulls over, and he calls her a bitch because he's totally justified, and she starts to wail on him, and he eventually gets out the car and runs he gets to a neighbor house he calls mama mom breaks down the door and drags him out then the cops show up back to the present 
JD has left his dinner and gone his way home. He's blowing off the rest of the interviews. Girlfriend is supportive, but frustrated. Flashback again! Grandparents show up and get JD, who insists that nothing happened and that his mom did not in fact hit him. Grandparents look sad about this, but then tell him he's a good boy for his lies. Adult JD is in Middletown now and is in a really bad way. At the hospital, he finds his mom, who is stable. They want to discharge her, but mom is combative. JD wants to get her in the program, but he can't get much traction, so now he's angry too! He gets a call for an interview. He has to be back in New Haven by 10 o'clock the next day. Flashback to finding his grandpa, who's dead. There's a tender moment between Mama and Grandpa, and then the hearse driving through town, and everyone doffing their caps and standing at attention, the way hill people do. Then Grandpa's funeral, and Mama's grief. And Mom is now stealing drugs and getting high at work, and now she's fired. Then Mom is abusive some more, and this time it's to Sister Lindsay. Yes, Lindsay! Sometimes, sometimes Lindsay exists in this movie. Kid JD and Mama have some bonding time with cards and the Terminator. Mama's theory is that in life, there are three kinds of Terminators, good, bad, and neutral. She tells him not to fuck up his life, and JD is like, uh, okay, uh, I guess I'll be good. Mama says that JD's good, she's good, but Grandpa and Mom are the bad kind of Terminators because of drugs and alcohol and their inability to let things go. This is interrupted because Mom is in the middle of the street having an attack of some sort. I think she's got some bloody hands, she's raving about her dad, she's getting arrested. Mama makes JD look away, she protects him. Present day, JD is trying to find a place for his mom to get drug rehab help, but her lack of insurance is making it hard. Drug rehab comparison stories with the sucker dads at a barbecue and somebody might have a lead. JD talks to Osha, the girlfriend, and he's kind of an ass to her as a way of proving that she wouldn't want to be with him anyways if she only knew the truth. She's hurt, of course. Flashback to mom in rehab when JD was a kid. He'd made her a little workbook of things to do. It's very sweet. Present day, JD is trying hard to get his mom into rehab. He, he lets drop that mama has been dead for a while, and JD is very emphatic and impassioned, and he eventually gets her a spot at a fancy rehab place. Now he needs to pay for the two weeks up front. He is doing the credit card dance that most of us, well, a lot of us know only too well. Mom sees and decides to bail. There's a bit of an argument. The past is brought up. It's just like mama, dot, dot, dot. And then a further flashback of grandparents' dysfunction, of mama lighting grandpa on fire for being drunk. Yes, lighting him on fire. And JD's mom, Bev, as a child, putting out the fire, so apparently that's why she's an addict. This is adult JD's watershed moment. The music tells us that he is changing. Off comes the sports coat. He decides to tell his mom about his girl. The first thing she says is, what is she? Well, she's Indian. You should bring her here. Uh, he's not going to do that. At least not yet. There's a tiny moment of bonding. She wants to go back to her loser boyfriend so JD can go back to his interviews. Flashback to kid JD and mom announcing that she's married, randomly, to a new dude. A dude with an allergy to JD's dog, so no more dog. Also, the dude has a son, so now JD is super thrilled to have a stepbrother. Yay! The new brother isn't all bad. He has a hookup on pot. He offers some to JD. JD declines. It's a gateway drug, you know. Classic scene of mom begging her son for clean piss so she can pass a drug test. Mama takes mom's side and tells JD to pee in the cup. JD calls them both shitty moms. Mama gives him a lecture about family being the be-all and end-all. JD wants to move in with her. She says no, but also go back in and pee for your mom. So JD does. And we get to watch it. Lucky us. Next scene. JD's coming home and finding mama on the floor due to a stroke. She's surviving this, but JD is worried and not doing very well in school. And doing drugs. And drinking. And being a dumbass with new stepbrother. It's all boys being stupid. One has quit his job because he has a pregnant girlfriend, but he doesn't really want to work. And so now, uh, hey, let's steal mama's car and do violence. Property damage. Adolescent bonding. Hooray. But alarm sounds and uh, they run and then they crash the car. 
Present day, J.D. takes his mom to her boyfriend's dump. He's throwing all of her stuff outside and calling her a whore, so J.D. goes full hillbilly and runs up to kick his ass, but stops when he sees a woman and kid on the landing screaming. He goes back downstairs and helps his mom clean up all of her stuff off the ground. Past! Mama is recovering from the stroke. Lindsay feels bad for not being there for J.D. I guess the teenage destruction happened because or right after J.D. had found her. Whatever. Anyway, Mama has her own flashback in this flashback to her failure of a mother as a grandmother. So she leaves the hospital and sets off to fix J.D. She tells Mom that she's going to take him and fix him so that he doesn't turn into a loser. Mom's not happy about it, but J.D. is kind of? Present day, J.D. is still trying to find a place for his mom. He has guilt about leaving Lindsay to deal with everything. She tells him not to make them his excuse and to take mom to the seedy hotel and drop her off. Past! Mama kicks his friends out along with some racial drivel and gets on his case about his homework. It's Mama's house of tough love and chores. J.D. tries to steal a calculator. He gets caught. Mama gets him the one he needs. He rebels. She yells. She's trying to motivate him to do well in school and break the cycle. He points out that his mom did well in school, but that got her nowhere. Mama says that he has to take the chance anyways. She expects him to take care of the family when she's gone. Mom has stopped trying, so now it's all on J.D.'s shoulders. I guess Lindsay only exists sometimes. Oh, wait, we knew that. Present day! J.D. drops Mom off at the hotel. Past! J.D. realizes how strapped for cash Mama is when she has to beg for Meals on Wheels guy for food. He sees her sacrifice, and suddenly a light bulb clicks. He starts doing chores and studying, and he gets a job. And then, yeah, he starts acing math tests, and his life has turned a corner. Present day, J.D. gets back to the hotel with food and mom is in the bathroom doing drugs. He stops her. They fight. Eventually, he holds her hand and and he has another flashback. It's snippets of stuff we've already seen, along with a couple of new ones about him going in the Marines and then mama dying and then him going to Yale and his girlfriend where she's giggling about his accent. In the hotel room, he tells his mom he loves her, but he has to go. And then he goes. And he calls Usha and he apologizes. And to help him not fall asleep on his long drive back to New Haven to try to get to his interview on time, he talks to Usha about and tells her all about his family, including talking about Mama and her death. He makes it back in time and the movie ends with him going on his interview with a voiceover that tells us that his Mama rescued him and made him who he is and family isn't perfect, but they made him who he is. So he's for sure going to get that job and his future is their legacy. The credits play over family photos and epitaphs for everyone. JD and Usha got married, had kids, live in Ohio. Lindsay and Kevin have been married for 22 years and have three kids. Beth has a job and spends time with her grandkids. She's been sober for six years. The end. So Jennifer, how did you first hear about this book and movie combo? We read it for book club a year ago. Yes, yes we did. So that's how I first you know, came to the book. Uh, and then... Because we had read the book, we kind of knew about it, and so when Netflix had their thing, oh, we read that book, let's read it again! Yes, and Yay. I don't know if you remember, but I told you that I wouldn't do this book and movie combo if Trump won, because <laughs> it would be just too depressing and angry. So if Biden won, it, we could do it, and yay! So Biden won, and here we are. <laughs> Not that we have any particular political affiliation that we're trying to press on anybody. Well, I mean, I have that a, we do all the time. Yeah, I was going to say, I have a political <laughs> affiliation. I'm not going to press it on you, but I am going to have it. So I guess, like, the weirdest thing to me is I never understood why he became the voice of the Trump supporter for the Appalachians. Because he doesn't really offer any insight. Yeah, I mean, he's, okay... Uh, this guy he's he's a uh, he's very libertarian this book is like is very libertarian and it was marketed as the book that's going to explain why people in kentucky and ohio and 
you know, the working poor, the white working poor support Trump. But he he wrote it before Trump won. Like I it was marketed that way, but that's not actually what it's doing. And I, I find that really frustrating, actually, because I feel like they also must have added in the subtitle later in the process, because the subtitle is a memoir of a family and culture in crisis. And I feel like because of that coming out in 2016 and the way it was marketing, it's like, oh, yeah, this book's going to explain something. Explain something. And, and I don't really feel like it does. According to a lot of other people, they don't feel like it does. And according to a lot of Appalachian people, they don't feel like he speaks for them because he spent his summers there, but he grew up in Ohio in Middletown, then you get into like this thing about you can label yourself a hillbilly and if you're your parents, no, your grandparents, yes. Like at what point are you co-opting a an identity? But then it's not really my place to say that you are or not what you say you are. I don't know, man. It's it's a um sometimes it is politically expedient to do so. So I did grow up with a person who, when he wanted to go to Harvard, he said that he was taking care of his grandmother and that he worked in the fields as a child. His parents owned the farm. He worked in the fields for like a summer. He was a you know fairly well-off kid, but it was politically expedient for him to do so. Yeah, and I feel like, okay, so obviously we're going to have our own baggers that we're going to bring to this, but you and I live in Devin Nunez's district. Devin Nunez, who bills himself as a farmer so that he can, you know, touch that with real America. But the guy's not a farmer. He's not a California farmer. You know what I mean? Like, it's not even a thing. And so I know that I'm already a little like resistant when people start telling me about their, I don't know, the, the pedigrees of, oh, but I'm this or I'm that or I'm blah, da, 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 da. There's a little part of me that's like, are you? Are you or are you just saying that because it's going to give you some kind of cachet? Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's JD. And he starts his book off saying that he's not a politician or an academic. Which is very clear. But he also did consider running for political office and is a, a pundit. So I just want to give a quick shout out for any of you Twitter followers. Devin Nunes's cow and Devin Nunes's mom are great Twitters to follow. Yes. Yes. And I'll link them in our show notes for sure. So yeah, so JD, he's he has definitely used this book as a springboard. I mean, not all for bad. Like he he's got a a nonprofit that's doing some interesting work. We'll link that in the show notes. But he also okay, this is the biggest thing. This is the biggest Devin Nunes cow in the entire room. He's a white dude, and I know that he doesn't want to talk about race and he doesn't want to talk about privilege. But I kind of feel like you it needs to be acknowledged here that he does like in one sentence in the very beginning he just says well you know i i do recognize that latino and black americans do fare harder but for for whatever reason um white non-college educated poor appalachian have a more cynical attitude towards hope in the future that is something that he starts off with and that's what comes out of the book a lot of the time is he wants to have everything his way you know he'll acknowledge oh well yeah this is true but this is also true the appalachian people are hard workers and at the same time they're drug addicts who don't want to work 
So he's constantly talking about the paradox of it, but never really saying anything insightful. Yeah, and I mean, I get that the first step to fixing a problem is acknowledging the problem, right? You know, so it's important to say, hey, this is an issue. And then then you can start to try to figure out how to fix it. But I feel like he's like, this is an issue. The end. This is the issue and I don't know what to do about it or this is the issue. And what I really feel like, and maybe this is again, me, my coastal elite, whatever, is that he's like, this is an issue. So meet us where we're at. Like, we're not going to change. So the world should change so that, you know, we can all blah, blah, blah. Does that make sense? Like, it didn't really feel like this is an issue. And so we need to do something about it. It just really felt like this is the thing. So accept it because it's not going to change. And the education and the religion being like the ways to get out, I take very big exception with that. Education, for sure. Yes. Hands down. Not going to argue with that. But obviously, getting a higher education is not the be all and end all. Like there's a plenty of ways to get out of poverty without a higher education. Like you don't, that also sounds a little judgy, but you know what I mean, right? It doesn't, tra- well, trade schools this, are um, a thing. I, I mean, I want to make, I'm going to make my, my full point here. Trade schools are a thing and e- education can definitely be a catalyst, but it's not the only thing and it can't exist in a vacuum. And religion, I would argue, actually keeps people in this in this way, way more than giving them an outlet to get out of it because we have, and they, they made a better point about this in the movie, I think, but he did talk about this in the book where there's this, the, the idea of women getting trapped into pregnancy and then kids and then kids and then like you have no other options. Whereas if you, if you could divorce yourself away from this patriarchal abortion is the worst possible thing in the entire world or i don't know god use some freaking birth control like birth control is a thing and just because religion tells you that it's bad doesn't mean it's actually bad so there's a lot of things that are taught in religion that are actually detrimental to people's health safety and upward mobility in my totally biased opinion go ahead i know you have something to say So speaking as somebody who is an academic and an educator, I have seen a lot of people in my, you know, my short career who did not know why they were in college and really shouldn't have been there. And that isn't to say that they weren't intelligent, but that college isn't for everybody. I do wish that there were more trade schools and more professions that didn't require this long college education that becomes very, very expensive the longer you're in it. And this was not the case for college, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it has gotten exponentially more expensive. So that was one of my frustrations where education, uh, I I don't know that that's really the solution. Um, Having trade schools, having other forms of having a decent job. Right. Uh, And I feel like you could say education could encompass so many things. It doesn't have to just mean higher Mm -hmm. education. Education could mean classes in high school that deal with critical thinking or trade schools or classes or things that expose you to outside thought processes and give you a more well-rounded education you know um because i think that that those are things that help people like people change when they so kaylee we are we're trying to solve society's ills right now come on (laughs) exactly with the program because we're going to do it right but like i mean i think that Empathy is a is a huge thing, and I don't think you can be taught empathy, but you can be taught about other people, and that empathy kind of can come from that. And demystifying the other 
is very important. It's one of the main reasons why, even if you're going to be a chemist, uh, you got to take something from the humanities in college because you need to have a well-rounded sense of things and you have to kind of understand how everything kind of fits together. And so education becomes this this thing that's just bandied around, but we're not all agreeing on what that means. So of course, it's not going to be the solution for everybody. So how many people would go to school if they didn't have to in order to earn enough money to afford to be the breadwinner for a family of four? Right. Not as many. That is not every country. That is specifically America. I have been to countries where working as a waitress, working as a gas station attendant, you can still afford to have your house, your family, and not be poverty stricken and desperate. Right. And so I think that this is a very, it, yeah, it's a very specific problem. And it's a very, it's one of those things that people say, oh, we'll fix all the problems with education without actually really thinking about it or understanding what it means. For JD, education definitely helped him get out. But I'm going to say the Marine Corps actually helped him more. And I'm not super rah-rah, everybody should join the military by any means. But he talks about it in the book about how he joined the Marines. It gave him discipline but it also exposed him to other people who were different from him and gave him a better sense of empathy and kind of broadened his horizons. Going to Ohio State didn't really do that for him. He really glossed over going and he was barely there. He was also, I don't understand how he got a four-year degree in a year and a half. Like, aren't there prerequisites? And don't you need 65 units to graduate? I'm very... Am I dense? What did I miss there? Um, I don't know that much about Ohio State. It could have some weird different program. But yeah, yeah a year and a half seems very odd unless he had some classes. In the right. Like maybe he did junior college and then he transferred and then, you know, or was taking college level. There are high school classes that you can take that go towards college right. credits. That must have been it because... And then, and so then, there, there's something weird. So with then, it. if when you transfer, if you've if you've finished all of your prewex, like your general ed, is you're technically supposed to be your first two years, and then you have two years. So finishing in a year and a half instead of two years, I mean, it, that is impressive, but it's not a four year degree in a year. I don't know, whatever. Which is one of the many things in this. There's book. something odd about it, yeah. as we understand education. There's there's a couple moments like that that happen in the book where he makes these statements or he says, "Oh, and then this happened," and you're like, "Wait, what?" I don't know. There, you're you're missing a couple in between. Yeah, and, and moments. And again, so I want to just go back to the to the Marines. Like he he went to the Marines. He got exposed. He did it. He learned a bunch. He got he his health was better. He was making better his life skills. Yes, that's a really big thing. And so that's not education, and that's also not religion. Well, that's ironic considering his exposure to a religion was this very narrow minded. Us versus them, the apocalypse is coming, you know, burning on the cross sort of fundamentalist religion. Yeah. That that he got with his father. And then he completely won eighties on that. Yeah. And the and the whole thing about, you know, well, we're you know, we got good family values. It's all about, you know, family values and honor and, and this and I don't And he supports this at one point. He says, Well, there's a study that says Christians who have, you know, these family values who don't just say they're Christian but actually go to church do better and there's a lot of that sprinkled into this book where he'll cite a study that supports his viewpoints but he is not an academic this is not a rigorous view into what sociology would have to say about it it's just him kind of piecemealing together 
little bits and that. Well, it's very cherry picking the cities that support his things. And also the, the real Christians, not real Christians is definitely the no real Scotsman fallacy here. Right. You know, oh, real Christians do this. Those other Christians do this. But that's why I want to say he, he wants to have everything his way where this Christianity he was exposed to was very insular that encouraged this us versus them idea. He'll support it by saying that there's this study that shows that this does better for children. That it gives more stable home life. And then later on, he'll completely contradict himself and say, wow, it was really, really awful. And I should have been exposed to all these things. Yeah. Yeah, it's so he seems to be going back and forth constantly, which I mean, in a different writer's hands, I might think, well, that's intentional, <laughs> like, but I didn't because he's learning. Right. But in this writer, yeah, everything he's doing, he kind of just supports in some way. So it's like, well, really, you know, commit to something if you're going to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say what really bothers me, and you talked about this with the empathy, is this is something that we tend to do, and this is quite telling for him is that. We blame people for being poor. Yes. And that is a really shitty thing to do. That is what Vance himself does. He looks at his, you know, his mother and she, well, she's a drug addict and she keeps fucking up. And here are these people down the street and they're meth heads. And this is why they're disenfranchised. Uh, Here's this person who doesn't want to wake up before eight in the morning and therefore quit his job. And it's not really explaining why people have those behaviors. And it's not explaining why we as a society want to believe that poor people deserve to be poor. We have to, in a capitalist society, we have to say, well, it's their own fault. And this is the bullshit that we take in this society. Yeah, it's it's interesting that he, you know, I said like the big thing that he doesn't acknowledge is the privilege. And I, you know, I think he pays lip service to it in one line, but it's really, it's not there. But the other thing that is really not talked about very much is mental health. And I think that that's a huge component, not only of of this, but it's a huge component of this population who's dealing with poverty. Poverty and mental health issues, they go hand in hand more than, I think, more than poverty and race or more than poverty and education. I think that a lot of times mental health and depressive, and, and I'm going to put addiction under the uh, mental health uh, umbrella here and it also it doesn't really go into sort of the own stereotypes that he performs so poor people are addicts i mean there have been counties who have said well we need a drug test to everyone who's on welfare they find that it's less than the general population yes but we have that stereotype drug you know, and, and he forwards that stereotype that poor people are drug addicts and, and that they're all lazy that's another major part of this and or they're gaming the system and there's very much this I mean, he never says welfare queens but <laughs> that's that is, that's basically yeah, what it implicit. is oh yes i'm working and this woman coming through the checkout line has a cell phone and she's paying with the government aid and i can't afford a cell phone therefore she is an awful person who's gaming the system. And I hate shit like that because, first of all, you don't know her life. Like, you don't know. You just don't well, there know. There are government programs to get a cell phone. Not only that, but it's Because like, they're considered, you know, emergency. Yeah, either that or, I mean, okay, so I know people who, okay, I'm going to be like Vance here. I'm going to give an anecdote and consider it data. But here's the thing. If you have a friend who's on assistance and you buy them something nice. Let's say you buy them a new pair of boots for for their birthday. And then they're off there, out there in the world. And they're wearing these awesome fucking boots. And they're buying something with their EBD card. You know, um, 
the snaps card. That's what it is in California. Mm-hmm. And somebody goes, oh my God, look at that person. Sp- you know, look at, th- and they can afford those boots. It's such a bullshit thing. It's it's a total straw man. It's just, it's picking and choosing. And, and it gets into this entitlement thing. Okay, JD, you're working really hard and you can't afford something. That's fine. Stop there. You don't have to then take your vitriol out on the people who have the things that you don't have because you don't know how they got them, whether or not they're quote unquote gaming the system or they've been gifted or they're maybe, you know, good with their money that they have limited money. And let's also not forget that you can't tell by looking at somebody if they're disabled or not disabled. I mean, there's just so many things. Also note, he went to Yale. Yeah. And he said he did this on entitlements. Yes. So he also and got it was aid. cheaper for him to do that than to go to state like all the other, you know, quote unquote, sort of poor people he grew up with. Yeah. So, so taking advantage of the programs while bitching about the fact that people are taking advantage of the programs. It's it's just there's a lot of for a book that's supposed to be very navel gazy. This like the movie was very navel gazy, too. But like this book is supposed to be like, I'm going to take a critical look at blah, 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 blah. But then he doesn't actually take a critical look at any of it. It's just very surface. It felt to me is frustrating. And yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't really give you any more information. You know, when we all started to wonder, why would these people, why would people support President Trump, who's not going to help them? Why did this area turn from Democrat to Republican? This book doesn't give us the answer to that. And I don't think it gives us a way to turn it back. So, okay. (laughs) Um, so just a quick thing about the cell phone. There was a national disaster and there there was a picture that was kind of running rampant on social media of uh, about 20 smartphones all plugged into one socket so that they could charge. And it's like, you're in the middle of a disaster. You're in a third world country. Why are you dealing with all these smartphones? It's like, you know, smartphones can cost like $20. They don't have to be super expensive. You can get a really basic, you can get used stuff. It doesn't have to be expensive. And if that's the only phone, computer, whatever you have in your house, your com- your laptop costs a crazy amount. This smartphone attaches people in a way that an expensive computer can't. Yeah. 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 And so it, it's, it's this weird, well, a smartphone costs $600. For you buying the Apple, the brand yeah. new thing, as, you know, your nerd tax, it doesn't have to be that way. No, it really doesn't. We all spend our money on different things, and sometimes it doesn't make sense to other people. You and I spend a lot of money on books. Well, okay, I don't know about you. I spend a lot of money on books, and we have a friend who spends a lot of money on books. We have multiple friends. (laughs) We're book nerds, whatever. There's a lot of money being spent on books. It makes perfect sense to me, and I can justify it all sorts of ways. I'll read them someday. I have a child. They don't depreciate in value. They look good on the shelf. They're useful forever. I can get a lot of use out of them. I only bought them when they were on sale. Blah, 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 right? Okay. I have a friend who buys a lot of wine, lots of wine. She spends a lot of money on wine. And I go, that's silly. You drink it, it turns into pee. I don't understand. It does not make sense to me. But to her, my book thing doesn't make sense to her because she's like, I get a lot out of my wine. It's a prestigious thing. I get to taste the best. I deserve the best. I keep the bottles or I keep the corks and like blah, da, 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 da. It's the way I show love with people when I share my special wine with them, all of the stuff. Like it's a thing. We have different things that we spend our money on because there are different things that are important to us. It would be really shitty of me to be like, you shouldn't spend your money on wine. How dare you spend your money on wine? That is stupid. Why would I do that? 
in the same way, don't give me crap about my books, right? Like everybody gets to spend their money their way is is my point. I'm sorry. I'm ranting now about books because... Well, there's also a really profound lack of understanding of what poverty does to you psychologically. Yes. So there are some studies that are finally being done on this, but until you read the studies, until you become educated and this is what poverty does to you, you're not going to understand why... Uh, somebody who's making, say, $25,000 and has two kids has got this giant television. It's like, well, why aren't you putting that towards your kid's college fund? And as somebody who has been in financial straits, we both have at certain points in our lives, when you have money and you're poor, you spend it immediately because you're not going to have it. Right. There is no saving for the future. You spend what you have right now because you're not going to have it. The other thing is about the quality of life. Right. So it's okay. Life is really hard. But if I can make my daily life a little better by having this TV so that I can escape, you know, from my situation by watching things, then that is a thing. That's that's an important thing. And again, we all we all do it differently. And there's there's there are definitely benefits in a lot of ways of delayed gratification. But you have to know that that gratification is coming. And I think if you're hopeless because you don't ever, you you have a model of your parents or grandparents going back that says gratification's never coming. So why would you save that money for a someday thing? It's... Take it now. Enjoy what you have while you have it because you could be dead tomorrow. I mean, there's something very appealing about that too. And... There's there's also, when it comes to stuff like budget, unless you have extra money, it's it's like watching somebody else play guitar. You know, I could watch Matt play guitar. It's like, oh yeah, you just do this thing. That's what you do. You know, you put your hand over here. You put you strum like that. If anyone could play guitar. I just watch them for five hours. I could do it. Unless you actually have the extra money to practice with, when you get extra money, you don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to save it. You don't know what, you know, how to you know, invest or what kinds of investments and finances. A friend of ours is into, you know, personal finance. I never got until I picked up one of her books. I was like, wow, that's demystifying because finances are scary, especially when you're poor. You don't have $100 in your bank. You have $98.18 because you count every penny. You know exactly where your money is. That's what it is to be in poverty. No, exactly. And and the the fact that uh the fact that then JD Vance <laughs> he like runs a a venture capitalist fund because he went to Yale and he was able to hobnob with these, you know, elites and stuff. Like he's doing he's doing quite well <laughs> for himself. Yes without and it just it just it does it really feels like he's he's forgotten some steps along well, the way at it he also has this thing about payday loans of well my senator was against this or the senator that he worked for the politician that he worked for and he's like well yeah you know rich people don't understand payday loans and no you don't understand them. they are predatory they are terrible you can have something of that line in fact, the post office used to be a bank for people who couldn't afford banks. You could take your paycheck there and deal with it without having to deal with bank funds and fees and whatever. I didn't know that. Yeah, we got rid of that program because, you know, for some reason, people who, who like private businesses <laughs> don't like the way, you know, these government businesses work at a fraction of the cost and more efficiently. Yeah. Well, and you can acknowledge that it's predatory and still see that it's an essential part of life, right? So the payday, the, the loan things are bad. They're bad for my community, 
but they're also necessary because we don't have this other thing, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like you can't acknowledge that, but by saying, no, they're, they're not bad at all is just misguided. Well, I would even say that they're necessary. You can't do that sort of thing without being predatory. Well, you can you can have like a payday lord that doesn't have like a twenty five percent interest rate. You you can, but if you're in there's certain places where that's that it's harder to get to that, right? So like if your only option is the one that's in your town and they are a crappy place, then that's where you're gonna have to go, right? But that's my point is that you don't have to have that. You could have something that is. So you you as society, not like you as yeah, yeah okay yes no society yeah, you as an individual. society should have better things for people yes but we also acknowledge it is expensive to be poor and that is something that needs to yeah you know be pounded into people who don't understand that. yeah right and and it one way more expensive to be one poor. little thing can just completely derail everything it's really hard to dig yourself out of a hole it's definitely difficult and 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 again I want to have sympathy for the people that J.D. Vance is talking about in this book. But he doesn't even seem overly sympathetic towards them. And that there's this there's a disconnect there, too, because he's like, these people are all lazy assholes and blah, 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 blah. So towards the end, he talks about how childhood stress derails your development. And again, this is something I experienced where children become very aware of their parents' struggles. So... You know, at one point we went to the movies and I was like, why are we going to the movies? We can do without and we could save, you know, this extra ten dollars that the family went to because we were having financial issues. As a child, you become aware of that. You know, it changes the way you think about money. It changes the way you think about security. He talks about his mother having all these different boyfriends. He didn't ever connect to one of these guys because it was a revolving door and it didn't have stability until his grandmother came into his life. So he understands what that does to a person. And then at the same time, he just wants to ignore the damage that does. You know, while I made it out, you can too, is an underlying principle, even though at the same time he says, this is what you're up against. It's almost impossible to make it out. Yeah, I feel like he's saying, I made it out, you can too. But he didn't make it out just under the power of JD. He made it out because of the sacrifices that Mama made. He made it out because of the sacrifices that his sister made. He made it out because of government help and entitlements. He made it out because of the Marine Corps. Like, he made it out because he, as a little kid, before he even decided to start trying in school, he always liked to read. So he made it out. He didn't have a learning disability. He was white. He was able to play the game eventually. He made it out because he met Usha in college, and she freaking held his hand and helped him you know, traverse the social th- areas that he didn't know. He apparently didn't know that you should wear a suit or dress up nicely for a job interview until somebody told him. Somebody told him. Do you know what I mean? He made it out, but not by himself. Like other people put on the boots, strapped the boots, gave him the laces, and then he pulled himself up by them boot traps. Like I just... One of the most ironic things about that statement is that it was originally intended to show that was impossible. You literally cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It is impossible. And now it's been sort of co-opted to be the same. Well, you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to add just one more thing about poverty. Because until you understand the psychology of poverty, a lot of things don't make sense. So like the Christmases that would be overblown and you would go, well, you know, we'll, we'll just get our, our tax refund and I'll pay for this until we'll just go nuts. A lot of that is compensation because you know that you feel like a failure. By society standards, you are a failure. And that is crap to live under. So there is something called covert prestige 
where you start to embrace, well, yeah, I am poor. Well, fuck you and fuck the rest of society because this is who I am. Because you get so sick of feeling like a failure, but it still comes out, which is why you overdo Christmas. Covert prestige. Yeah. That's an interesting term I had not heard of before. Yes. Thank you for that. Yeah. And then also there's like this, I mean, we all self-medicate in different ways. Some of us uh, overeat or, you know, eat eat gummy bears at <laughs> 1030 at night. Some of us cry in the shower, whatever. We all, we all have our ways of coping, right? And there are more health, more or less healthier ways, but it's just, it's coping yeah. mechanisms. And I feel like people forget that sometimes buying the big things or spending the money or blowing through the money or refusing to plan for the future because that future may or may not come is, is part of a coping. Also, just real fast, I want to touch back on the religion. If you had a whole religion that's like, doesn't matter what happens on Earth, you can suffer and be poor and be sad and lonely, depressed and blah, blah, blah on Earth. When you die, everything's going to be better. You're going to have paradise. You're going to have all your needs met. You're going to be blissfully happy, blah, blah, blah. It definitely affects whether or not you care as much about Earth because you know quote unquote, you know, you're going somewhere better. So, I mean, and, and not to get real into it, but this is Scots Irish, right? We're talking about a tradition of suffer through earth, like suffer as a, as through life so that you will get rewarded in heaven. And that it's like, there's like beauty in suffering is like, kind of, like again, I hate that religion has these claws mm -hmm. into people and it makes it that there's this pull that it doesn't matter now because it's going to be better eventually. That is a so big criticism really... against Mother Teresa is that she believed in suffering. So people who were suffering, who maybe didn't want to, couldn't get pain medication because she thought suffering was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like the more you suffer now, the better you're going to get rewarded later. And, and so don't worry about this, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, a, it's a bad, it's a bad, bad thing. Okay. So movie. <laughs> Movie. Okay. First off, I think the timing of this movie was very interesting. And yeah, so the book came out. And then there was the 2016 election. Trump won. Everybody was like, what the hell? And oh, okay, not everybody. <laughs> Lots of us, though, including I think. Well, let's also re remind that Trump was the popular vote loser. Yes, yes, let, yes, yes. Let us remember um, that he was the popular vote loser. Uh, I think also he didn't expect to win. <laughs> so I think he was also a little surprised. Whatever. Okay. So he, he became our president. Grumble, grumble. Fine. Then we're heading into 2020's election with a lot of fears interpretation. And they decided to make this movie. And it came out in November and, you know, Thanksgiving. And I know that like some of the there were some delays because of of COVID. At one point, his girlfriend is literally phoned in. So his girlfriend in the movie at one point, like for most of it, like half of her her being in this film is literally phoned in. Yes, she's on the phone with him because COVID and scheduling and all this other bullshit. Yeah, I know that they filmed a bunch of this before and then slightly during and it was a, it was a whole thing but they still had it come out in november uh, uh you know less than a month after the election and so i thought that that was it and i'm not sure if this movie would be received differently if the election had gone a different way i don't know this movie's not very well received anyways there's a lot of a lot of criticism of it out there on the interwebs which i'm sure you can all read one of the main changes because we always start with changes right we'll do changes then we'll do themes and blah 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 so changes they took out all the sociological stuff. They stripped everything out of the book that made it at all valuable. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it just really became a simple 
although told in a very complicated way, story of a guy and his mom and then she's a drug addict and he goes and lives with his grandma and then he turns his life around and then he goes to college and then she's still a drug addict and then he's getting a job did i miss anything like (laughs) yeah it's also kind of ironic because in the book he says i don't believe in transformative moments you know transformation is a process but the movie's told as a transformative moment of oh i saw my grandma struggle and therefore i'm going to do better yeah yeah one moment of noticing his grandma uh you know struggling at the door with the the meals on wheels because he's never before connected that like they're poor or that it's hard for her i dude it was schlocky okay so that was a major change to not have any of that sociological stuff they kept the the voiceover narration which uh they didn't need and God help you if you have voiceover narration in your movie. Well, just sometimes some okay, the thing of a voiceover is to tell you something that there's no way to tell you by the pictures that you're seeing, right? Or to play like or or to put you in a time and a place or to use it as a framing device. So it's a framing device here, kind of, but we just it's just not necessary. I don't know. It's just it it felt it it just felt sloppy and not necessary. But I will say there was there was a couple things in the movie that I that I liked because I'm an optimist, full of love, and I find the good in all things, as you know. Okay, so what did you like? I well, okay, <laughs> kind of I kind of liked. There's there was she was barely in the movie, but there was more Lindsay in the movie than there was Lindsay in the book, and I liked Lindsay and I wanted more Lindsay. So even though one of my main complaints about this movie is that there's not enough Lindsay, I like the fact that there was as much Lindsay as there was. And we talk a lot on this podcast about missed opportunities, but Lindsay, to me, is the biggest missed opportunity of them all. And they they did a couple of things where you almost was making these cool connections, for example. So Lindsay is, is taking care of of JD, right? She's the big sister. She's kind of the protector, except when she's forgotten by the screenwriters and she's not there. But she's always placed in this position of being this nurturing role, right? That's her job. So she's the protector. She's the nurturer. We see her hugging JD, you know, all of this stuff, taking care of JD. And then when they have the scene in the kitchen at one point where JD is doing his homework and the mom has lost her job and the grandma's yelling at the mom and Lindsay kind of calls her mom out on it. And then the mom's like, hey, you're going to end up pregnant too. And Lindsay's like, no, I'm not, you know. So like Lindsay's good moment of, you know, I refuse to to go the way that my life has been set out for me. It's, it's really good for Lindsay. Also, Lindsay's cooking in that scene. She's making food for JD. And what we see her a lot of times is doing these very typical mother-wife caretaker roles, right? But what we know about her is that she had one boyfriend, Kevin, because he gets mentioned often and always. And then they got married and they've been together for 22 years. They have three kids. She's the soccer mom. Like, she, but she's also, you know, she works at a shoe store. She's so she works. She's a mom. She's a wife. She's got all this stuff going on. She asks JD for help. He begrudgingly comes back to help her. I don't know, man. I just, I really like. I saw Lindsay. I, I see you, Lindsay. I liked Lindsay. I wish we had gotten more Lindsay. And I did like the fact that there was that scene where she was like, "I'm not going to end up pregnant," and she didn't. She got married. Then she had her kids. Like she, she escaped, quote unquote, escaped the thing. 
you know, like, like he said, oh, well, he's destined to become a drug addict and to not graduate and to have this miserable life. And, you know, he escaped his way through those entitlements and through going to Yale and, you know, yada, yada. But I would say Lindsay escaped in her own way, too. And she seems pretty happy with her life, with her husband and her kids. And the fact that that doesn't really acknowledge as a quote unquote escape either is is troublesome. Cool. Lindsay's cool. Um, I just wanted to know, um, you know, even if she had become, you know, a, an unwed teenage mom, that's not the end. You you can go and be on that. Yes. Agreed. So- agreed. Agreed. Sorry if that if I wasn't clear. But yeah, no, she but she but she wanted to escape kind of the what had been laid out for her and her mom's assumption that that's what girls do. Girls just get pregnant and then their entire lives is about taking care of kids and, you know, and, and that, I mean, it says a lot about Bev, the mom here about, you know, she resents her children. And that's the thing is how that's considered a failure. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. It's just framed that way. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then that's how she saw it. And she was resentful of her children. Bev was resentful of her children, which again, I'm just going to go back to hooray for uh, birth control and abortions. And if you don't want kids, don't have kids. It's better to not have kids than to have them and resent them. I think. Let's also note that you know, this is one of the great things about Planned Parenthood is they consider abortion to be a failure. There are so many steps before that. You know, let's get you birth control. Let's get you education. Let's get you tested. Let's do this and this and this. It doesn't have it, most of Planned Parenthood is planning the parenthood. Yep. Another thing that I liked in the movie, the <laughs> long dramatic pause. <laughs> I don't know, man. I didn't I didn't really like this movie. It and I I'm so frustrated, Jennifer, because I feel like when we started this project, I was like, this is gonna be so much fun. We're gonna talk about books and movies. And now we talk about them and I'm like, this sucked. <laughs> this is bad. This is not as good as you remember it. <laughs> don't bother. <laughs> I, wait, I, I I regained my love of Mary Poppins. I wouldn't have done that if not for this podcast where I watched it again. I went, oh my God, this is so adorable. How did I forget how adorable this was? Okay, good. So we're rounding the bend over 40 episodes. <laughs> okay, I will say something that I thought was really good is I thought while Glenn Close and Amy Adams are really fantastic actresses and they've done amazing stuff, I, I think they're amazing actresses. I think they were a little bit underutilized in this film. However, when you see the pictures of Mima and his mother, they really do encapsulate those characters. Yeah, the the um, costuming and prosthetics worked. Yes, I will give you that. I I found the acting a little uh... hokey. Well, yeah, I I feel like Amy Adams was a, and again, she's supposed to be way too much because she's Bev, right? That was that character, but at some there was a couple moments where it just really felt like this is Amy Adams trying to get an Oscar. This is Glenn Close going for an Oscar. She's going to put on prosthetics and a big baggy shirt and she's going to curse. And then suddenly, I don't know, like they didn't seem I, to be, they, they, they seem. I can see those people. I've met that person before. Right. No. And I think both of us have relatives that aren't that far away from those people. But I'm, what I'm saying is like, it almost felt like a caricature to me, the way it was portrayed in some ways. There were some moments that felt very real. The moment after they found the grandpa in the chair and Mama 
leans over and has like this quiet moment with him that felt very real to me and some of the some of the acting of Glenn Close when she was looking at JD and 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 on her face I it felt very real but there was a lot of it that just felt very caricature I don't know that's just that's just me but your your mileage will vary obviously I do think that they showed the mom's mercurial aspects better in the movie in the book while he talked about some of the exact same situations, seeing it in the movie and how quickly on a dime it changed from happy to scary to sad to happy to scary, you know, all of her emotions over and over again. I felt like that felt very true to life with life with an addict and with somebody who maybe has a another a, something else going on, too. Is, uh, she felt very bipolar in some respects yeah. and that it also felt very real. the manic aspect of her. I thought that portrayal was good. Vance comes off as, you know, like gray putty. There, there's nothing interesting about him. He's just kind of the blank canvas for which all of this happens around him. Yeah. Now, I will say the kid and and the adult, Vance, they look alike. And they do look like him in real life. So again, like the the makeup, the trappings worked really well. It, both the child vans and the adult vans seem to kind of always have this befuddled mouth slightly agape watching the world go by. You know what I mean? It felt very much like they were they were watching their families instead of interacting with their families in a lot of ways. Um, which I guess is part of it because that's definitely how it felt in the book too. Like he was watching and looking if you were given this as you know a written script how would you direct it differently to get the film that you would want well i wouldn't want it but um i mean uh tone down the flashbacks oh my god yes tone down the flashbacks and tone down the flashbacks within the flashbacks because that was really frustrating and also like the the timing like the like was okay i know that in present day it it starts with him leaving work at the dishwashing, you know, at the school and and ends like two or three days later. Like it's only three days long present day. But the past, it kind of starts with the end of a summer. And is all of that shit supposed to have happened within, you no, know, the same year, maybe two years? Like it was the kid did not look like he aged up at all in the past flashbacks, but it was way too many things to just happen in one moment of time. And it, I I Mm, it so that was hard i think if i was making this movie i would just focus on the past and leave the present out of it tell it as a one narrative story going forward you know what i mean in time and not have this flipping back and forth and then maybe towards the end when he finishes high school and gets accepted to ohio state and then deciding to go to the marines instead for a little bit you know, and then have it end with Mama's death because that happened right before. You know what I mean? And then like, okay, so then what is he going to do? Now he's really on his own. And like that is the moment where he's like, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to finish leaving. I've already started this leaving process and I've become exposed to other things. And I now know that there's more out there for me and I can go and I'm going to take these tools and the stuff that Mama taught me and yada, yada. And off I go. Like it could have been, you know what I mean? Like that optimistic off I go into the world that I guess and I would have had it be a slower build and a, a showing of how he decided to change you know to change his life and turn that corner in high school and stuff not just this one moment of whatever what about you what would you do <laughs> there are moments that seem very darkly comic like when Mima 
sets her husband on fire for Hall- or for uh, Christmas. Yeah. And a different touch would have brought that out more. Or showing kind of the consequences or, or the roots of some of this behavior. Like I said, you go overboard in Christmas because you're a failure. You feel that. I don't want to say you are a failure. I say, you know, you feel like a failure. And so you want to go overboard. Um, you know, I have the kids, instead of just being a spoiled brat, you know, reflect on, well, we can't afford this and have that stress come out. So you understand the causes that you get some insight into what is making these people behave the way they do. I think that it could have tried to decide, is it going to tell a story about a, a family with a with a drug addict central figure, the mother figure, and, and J.D. dealing with his mother and his two maternal figures in his life, right? With poverty being like the uncredited third main character. Does that make sense? Or it could have been a movie about poverty with the addiction being the other character that is affecting everything. But, but like it to do yeah. it both doesn't it, it sort of diminishes both. Does that make sense? And then we throw in all of the modern or the present day stuff and everything gets watered down and diminished. Yeah, that's why I would say get rid of the flashbacks because they're not really advancing a whole lot other than, you know, you're trapped but you're out but you're never out. Yeah. And that's a very muddled message. And and there were some uh, elements like so okay, because when they're driving and they go through the tunnel, welcome to Middletown, and then like later driving to go through the tunnel, Middletown, and then driving going through the tunnel, welcome to Middletown, and you can see Middletown like we see it, and how it's just changed so completely every single time. Mama sees it, you know, when she's young. We see child JD, and then I guess we see adult JD. I felt like we saw that tunnel a lot more often than that. Um, and like it could have really worked on some levels to kind of show stuff and and it was there but it but it wasn't really i felt like that part was there to as an easter egg for the people who read the book when you want to talk about like the cynicism that this particular group has you know what caused it why why do um groups i hate to say it like that but uh why do various groups have more optimism about the future like latinos and part of it is that they're I, I feel like the complete failure of language in this because I don't want to be us, them, their groups, this and that. But um, if for, for a lack of better way to speak about this, when you're a migrant farm worker and your kid goes to high school for the first time, that's a step up. You know, when your grandchild goes to college, you know, you're stepping up. With this group, you had a fairly wealthy background. Um, the South was incredibly rich before the Civil War. And to have that just constantly... Put down where you're losing jobs, your town's losing out, and it feels like you're constantly losing rights. So there's that expression, um, when you lose privilege, it feels like oppression. To have that as something that would help explain, this is what's going on, this is why these people feel left behind, is because their grandparents did so well, and then they're not. Yeah, no, 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 that's a really down. good point. And, and they kind of make it, they, he makes it much more in the book than in the movie, where the grandparents left, they went to middle, they were, they, there were three houses. Grandma had a house, grandpa had a house, mom had a house, like they're in the suburbs, they had quote unquote arrived, you know what I mean? In that, in that thing. But then Middletown itself started to go downhill. So now Lindsay and her family are there, but it's, it's a different, type of suburbs it's it's you know it's not doing as well so where do they do they leave do they go to another place they can't go back you know and i think that that could have been a really interesting thing that whole idea of people like that of amco coming in and being like hey, oh everybody move over here we got jobs for everyone i you know that that could have been a very interesting like that was interesting to me the historical part of it 
but it wasn't there in the movie. The movie just didn't didn't do that. So, like another thing, and and I'm totally going to blame uh, television on this one. When you grow up and you don't see what it looks like to be really poor, it's really hard to to kind of position yourself. You always feel like you're wanting more. If you watch the old Roseanne, they've got a decent house. When you're poor, you don't have that. You know, so you're always looking at middle class as being much wealthier than what you are, even when you're considered the same class. Like the last time poverty was really shown as poverty on television was something like the Honeymooners, where they were poor and it looked like they were poor. They were struggling and you could see that struggle in the show. It wasn't just something that you talked about, but you showed something completely different for film aspects. Like, you know, when I look at Bastard of Carolina, which is an extremely good movie and book, very brutal but very well done you can see how her life affected her how the poverty affected them how all these ironies come into place and so it's it's a lot more insightful about this particular story of this child we need to do bastard out of carolina i actually met dorothy allison she is amazing wow yeah i just got instant envy it was cool Well, okay, your rock star notch just went up. Yes, well, she took my book to read too. I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) It was a long time ago. She never reached out. But a big change that happened from the book into the movie, I thought this was a very interesting change. So in the book, there's all these anecdotes that quote unquote prove that people are lazy and deserve to be poor. And in the movie, they kept the thing with the guy quitting his job with the pregnant girlfriend. He's got a pregnant girlfriend. But he quit his job anyway because getting in trouble because he was taking too long in the bathroom breaks, all these bathroom breaks, and he was late, blah, blah, blah. He didn't want to get up early. Okay. In the book, this dude is like in his 20s. And in the movie, he's like a teenager. And I thought, okay, well, this is a change that's obviously very intentional. You don't expect a teenager to have the foresight to be like, I should buckle down and be serious, blah, 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 right? Like, you just don't. Like, we we, we have different expectations of t- teenagers and young men, in young people, in their 20s. And so that it diminishes from the punch of that story to age him down a little bit. You're like, oh, it's an immature person being immature whereas in the book when you read it you're like what the hell is wrong with this guy does, does that make sense like it's a it was a it was a very notable mm-hmm. change to me anyways that was a that was a big change oh i've kind of already talked about it but i want to talk about it again the movie does not treat any of the women very well you know like the idea that all women are going to end up pregnant and then basically all the women in this movie bend over backwards over and over and over again for our main character except for bev and she gets a pass for for bending over for jd because she's the addict but mama and Lindsay and usha are all just there to help him on his on his little path and uh you know he gives mama lots of credit but doesn't really give any credit to anybody else which is very frustrating well that's a great point how women are you know bearing the responsibility for all the mistakes oh you're gonna get pregnant yeah where's the guy that got her pregnant and you know something with me is she had a really hard beginning in her life you know she was pregnant at a very young age had lots of miscarriages had all these issues and you know that's completely forgotten as well yeah 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 we really don't you know get mama's hardship and in the movie we don't really get the like the rest of the the kids like basically she just deals with bev that's it. Like, there's yeah, no- and you know, there were other children that right. actually had pretty decent lives. Yeah, but no. Uh, anyways. So it never really explains, like, why does 
Why is Bev the one who falls off the track? Yeah, I mean, and it kind of, it, the only explanation is that, you know, because she, she was really smart in, college, in high school, and then she got pregnant, and then blah, 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 and then she was doing okay until they moved away from Middletown, and in, in the book, it's, you know, they move away from Middletown, and then she that has a domestic with her with her husband and then like things just really go downhill and then she really loses it after her dad dies okay okay but in the movie there's really no explanation given at all except that well she got pregnant and she was resentful and then her life went to shit uh cough cough planned parenthood yet again this episode brought to you today by planned parenthood birth control for get everyone get a condom <laughs> seriously they're free in a lot of places so yeah i don't know man this movie i don't feel like it needed to be made i'm not really sure it added anything to the the conversation what bothers me about you know this particular conversation is we're still having it we're still having it when covid is out right now and we've had to have some uh you know enhanced unemployment and still the debate about well you're just making people dependent they won't want to go to work they won't want to go to work it's like no people want to work and if your unemployment, unemployment is paying better than their working wages, that says something really significant. So that conversation's still going, and it still is just as annoying how we blame people for their own poverty when it's a system that is set up to you know keep a caste system. Yeah, yeah. People want to think that we are not a caste society, but we are in America. We're also not post-racial, but different book. Yeah. Jennifer, was this book worth your time? Was this movie worth your time? Were either of them worth your time? Okay, the movie is just another sort of rag to riches. It, it, you know, it's been told a thousand times. You're not going to get anything new out of it. There's nothing new to be told in this film. It's the same old, same old. I found it, you know, to be rather tedious. Uh, the book is short. I think it's, you know, not terrible to read once, but there are much, much better books out there. I will say. Book. Was it worth my time? No. It didn't offer anything new. It wasn't life-changing. It isn't vital to the conversation about why people support Trump, which is what its marketing promised. It isn't written very well. The points it's trying to make, honestly, I don't know what points it was trying to make. And before you at me with that all books don't need to make a point, yes, they bloody well do. Because either they tell a compelling story with interesting characters or they teach us something and this book did neither. Plus, it's a memoir, which means it has extra responsibility to meet the, but why the fuck should we care, threshold. <clears throat> the film is fine in a vacuum. It's just an okay story about people doing people things, I guess. The scenery was pretty. The acting was either okay or really bad. The story was not that interesting. Boy makes good because he suddenly decided to give a shit. All the women bent over backwards to make sure it's okay. It's forgettable. Again, it makes no real point. It was more mama and less GID, maybe, maybe more Lindsay? But no, this, no, the end. Every other character is so much more interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. for reals. <laughs> for realsies. Ah, okay, so this episode of Patience and Popcorn Podcast brought to you by Technical Difficulties. <laughs> yeah, lots. Uh, cats. cats. Uh, outrage at a class system. Uh, sniffly noses. <laughs> too much coffee. <laughs> yeah. There's no such thing. What's wrong uh, with you? But yeah, except we had to take two different potty breaks. Um, <laughs> so have a happy holiday for those of you celebrating holidays this month. And have a happy new year for all of you because 2021 is going to come, whether you like it or not. 
and um, set those expectations really low for 2021. Maybe we'll be cool. Maybe maybe it'll be okay. That's dismal. <laughs> okay, pop those champagne corks. Enjoy it. Let's let's hope for the best and have a good. There ride. we go. Hooray! 2020 is almost over. Woo! <laughs> I didn't know that Bastard Out of Carolina was a movie. Oh, I think it's on YouTube. It looks like. Jennifer Jason Lee. Huh. Yep, the full movie's on uh, YouTube for free. Yep, and also uh, Amazon. Cool. Sweet. Okay, I'm going to add it to my, our list because I love that book. Oh, it's so brutal. It'd be really nice but to read. I know, I know, but you know, it would be nice to read something that I, I like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really liked Jurassic Park, so faithfully. There's been a few, but like. It is. I'm getting. I'm getting tired of being a grumpy curmudgeon. You know. But you're so good at it. No. <laughs> I am sweetness and light, Jennifer.